All right, what's up, everybody? Here's what I want to talk about today. It's been on my mind a lot lately. I think it's increasingly important now more than ever that if you're a writer, you do not write for the algorithms. And here's why. There's many reasons why. But let's start with the big one, which is timely. AI is going to significantly decrease the payoffs to writing for the algorithms using your brain. And basically, everyone's going to start using AI to generate these like algorithmically optimized tweets. I personally think maybe it's quite possible that all normal Web 2.0 social media in the next year or two or some short amount of time is going to just completely fill up with AI generated content. And it's you're already seeing it and we don't even have that much AI. It's not even that accessible to most people yet. People, human beings have become AI more or less. If you look at like Twitter, it's been insane to me noticing recently, like in the past few months even, just how many accounts are just like spewing out the same bullshit basically. And it's like the simplest kind of self-help advice on the big themes like sex and dating and money. These are of course like the big desires of all humans, right? So they're the biggest markets. And if you just basically give out like really generic advice on these big things and it sounds good and it's inspiring or whatever, it really works. It's candy for the algorithm. And now that we have AIs that are going to help people do this, it's like, that's just going to basically suffocate everything. And so if you're trying to be creative and think about things and add knowledge to the world and make advancements in how the world thinks, you're honestly kind of doomed if you see yourself as trying to compete with AIs at the level of like algorithmic optimization. You're going to have to just accept that you are not going to be able to grow as fast as you could if you had really optimized content. And quite the contrary, I think what you're going to see is that actually precisely because it's getting cheaper and cheaper to generate algorithmically optimized content, the biggest gains, the biggest opportunity is going to come from going completely against it. And in a way, I think, again, you're already seeing it. Like, this is one of the things that I find most interesting and compelling about the people I roll with, like in my community and the other life community, people who come through the courses, people in the indie thinkers community, we have all these different little cohorts, is that this is like what my people have in common, I think. And I, in a way, I've learned that what I'm talking about in this video, I've learned this from the people that I'm very proud to have in our little community. If you look at someone like Samuel Barnes, who just published a book entitled The Iconoclast, you can Google search it and buy yourself a copy. He's a very interesting dude. He's a smart guy, very independent guy, he wrote this book and didn't ask anyone for permission, didn't care about getting it formally published in any kind of fancy outlet. He just wrote it because he felt called to write a book. And he did a little book tour in a way. He was traveling the United States a few weeks ago, seeing people from the community and people who read his work. And he's a great example of how I think you should really more and more, I'm more and more convinced that he's got the right idea. And my thinking has evolved on this because I haven't always thought this exactly. I've always been of the position that you want to do a little bit of writing for the algorithms, a little bit just to grow and get your name out there and get your, get a platform kind of established. And maybe that was a okay way to think for a little while, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe that was actually wrong from the beginning. In any event, I'm increasingly believing that it's basically wrong and that the real trick is if you're not going to write for algorithms and you're going to just reject that 
paradigm of trying to build an audience through optimizing for the algorithm, then you do need some kind of alternative mechanism or alternative structure for how you're going to make your work sustainable. And this is, I think, the thing that people haven't really thought through yet. And this is where I like to think that actually me and my people, my circles on the internet, we actually are collectively figuring this out in a very compelling way, in my opinion, because what we're seeing is that if you just don't write for the algorithms whatsoever and you just don't care about how big your audience is, you just completely forget about that altogether. You can just start writing with and alongside and in communication with other people who are doing, who, who are making that same decision. And in that way, you can actually bootstrap a little community and a kind of where is everyone's audience in a way. You can get 100 people, 200 people, 500 people, maybe 1,000 or 10,000 people, all of whom have just basically set sail from the algorithms writing with each other. Not collectively or collaboratively necessarily, in some cases that might be the case, but I'm saying doing their own independent work and sharing it with the group and everyone is reading and commenting and interacting with you know the other people in it. To me, this is a viable alternative structure for making it sustainable because historically the real problem with rejecting public opinion and not playing the games that society wants its writers to play, not submitting to that conformism, the problem typically is what are you left with? You're just going to be writing to yourself in a room all alone or something like that. And that doesn't work. No one wants to do that for very long. It's not fun. It's not successful. Ultimately, you want to change the way that the world thinks in one way or another. And yeah, the risk of that kind of anti-conformist position is that maybe no one will ever find out about your work or you won't have any reason to continue doing it and you'll quit because it's not very fun to just be writing by yourself. And so that's why in my mind nowadays, like right now, everything is going in this direction where I think the payoff to doing this kind of algorithmically optimized stuff on Twitter and stuff like that is is decreasing because it's already saturated and ridiculous and self self-invalidating. It's self-mocking in a way. It becomes a parody of itself. But also I think AI is going to be the nail in that coffin, arguably. And at the same time, you're also seeing this kind of move to private community where more and more of the action anyway is taking place in private DMs and, and different kind of community structures. Add some interesting Web3 elements to this. I don't want to speculate about that too much in this video because this my argument here does not in any way depend on any of that. And maybe it, it doesn't even need to be introduced to make the argument fully. But essentially, there are a few reasons to think that a few different vectors of experimentation and and Web3 technology would also be a major multiplier of the payoff to doing truly independent original work outside of the mainstream mass algorithmic selection filters, right? So that's my position. I think all of the alpha right now is in writing originally and independently, totally rejecting the algorithms, but just doing it consistently and doing it with other people in structures where it's sustainable and where you can stay productive and you can stay focused and held accountable on seeking some kind of genuine intersubjective truth rather than just going off in your own imagination for forever. Although if you're an artist, that can sometimes be a perfectly interesting and viable path as well. All right, that's all for today. I just wanted to jot that thought down real quick or log it in a video. Thanks everyone. Subscribe to the channel, by the way. Some of you are still not subscribed, so do that. Leave a reply if you want to, if you agree or disagree. All right, what's going on, everybody? I recently got an email from someone who reads the newsletter. They sent me a recent article by Sam Chris 
It's called The Internet is Already Over, and they wanted my thoughts on it. So I was curious to read it. I figured I'd record a little video sharing my thoughts. So in the essay, he's basically very negative about the internet, as the title implies. He basically says that the internet completely over and done, like nothing of interest will ever happen on the internet again. He makes, I think, some very good arguments and definitely writes in a way that I think has the right tone. I think it's very evocative of indeed how bad it's become and the stakes and the just awful kind of inhuman deadening effects and atmosphere of the internet right now as we know it. So I think in many ways he hit the nail on the head and the first part of the argument, I would say I strongly agree with. I do agree that the internet is in large part self-destructing and it seems to be reaching a kind of fever pitch right now where it seems to be rolling over into something else. Seems like the internet as we know it just can't really go on much longer for many different reasons. And he gets at many of them. So I liked it and agree with that part of it. And I think we need more serious thought and reflection and an expression of precisely how bad it's really become. So I applaud the piece in that regard. I guess where I part ways is on a few things. So I'll throw everything. I've always thought Sam Chris is pretty cool. I didn't get to meet him in England. I think I wrote him, if I'm not mistaken. I believe I sent him an email, but we never connected in England. I know Nina knows him. I'm sure we have many other mutual friends, but I generally think it's cool. I like him for what it's worth. So my critiques are just purely impersonal, but I definitely think the piece suffers from a kind of general pessimism that I don't think is warranted personally. Like I said, I haven't met him, but it's pretty clear reading him that he's pretty much a kind of good old fashioned humanist Marxist is how I think of his perspective at least as I know it, and at least as it comes through in this particular piece. He makes grand sweeping inferences of society and the culture by references to capital with a capital C. This is a kind of genre that was basically invented by Marx and Engels. And it's just a generally kind of gloomy, pessimist, what Nick Land would call a kind of transcendental, miserable perspective, where You are reading the Wall Street Journal every day and every big report about what capital is doing is a kind of tea leaf that is needs to be decoded into how it represents the end times. This kind of weak messianism is what Walter Benjamin called it. And it's it carries over into a certain kind of lineage, especially British, I would say, classic Marxist humanism, where, yeah, you just basically imagine that capital, you always want to imagine that capital has reached its limits. It's always reaching its final contradiction. But the problem is they thought that 10 years ago, they thought that 50 years ago, they thought that 100 years ago, and so on. And Sam, Chris seems to be indulging in that particular genre or that particular mode. I don't think it really holds up very well. I don't think it's ever been right. That mode wasn't right then, and it's not right now. So having said that, I should say I often myself dabble with a kind of apocalyptic mode in certain ways. In certain ways, it does look like we might be approaching something like a kind of apocalyptic moment. I think of Rene Girard, for instance, whose late work, I took this very seriously. I'm sympathetic to that. So I'm not above a certain kind of messianic register or a kind of apocalyptic register. My critique is not of that in particular, but part of my critique would be of Sam's particularly Marxist. And if I do say so myself, I would say naive was no disrespect to him. A, a naive Marxist 
perspective on decoding the movements of capital. For instance, he talks about SoftBank's vision fund. If you don't know SoftBank, they're basically one of the biggest VC funds in the world. And they recently reported losses. And Sam Chris writes about this as evidence that capital has reached its end when it comes to investing in technology companies, that this is evidence that Silicon Valley is no longer feasible or something like this. He makes these kinds of grand generalizations. And I know he's, he's not a scientist. He's a writer. He's trying to stimulate, evoke and entertain and all that. I'm not being overly scrupulous or anything like that. I do think the general gist of a lot of what he's saying is very true and important and very worth reading. And I applaud it. But yeah, on many details like that, I don't buy it. I don't agree with those details. And basically the reason this matters is because I don't in any way think that networking through digital technology is over. That's just absurd. And he does basically seem to think at the end, he does basically that he thinks pretty much everything that matters now moving forward is increasingly going to be just like through IL interactions. And I think that's pretty much false. I don't really see how that's conceivable. I agree that the internet as we know it is dead, but internet is in its first inning. This is probably the best way that I could summarize my disagreement with his piece. The internet in some sense is over in the sense that its current phase is coming to an end. We're definitely at some kind of watershed there. I agree with that. But it's not the internet as such is completely over. The internet understood as like humans networking through digital technology and things like AI and machine learning and computing and paid apps and the whole kind of economy or political economy of digital computers and digital network. The internet as we currently think of it is over. I agree. But the larger world of human beings doing things with digital technology in network and increasingly sophisticated ways, that's not over at all. That's absurd to think that's over and everything is just going back to meat space. We are going to continue invent and reinvent new forms of computing and new forms of networking. And obviously, I think very obviously, history is on my side in this regard. Technology, as we know of all of human history, has never just come to an end. It is constantly reinventing itself. And so another thing we see is that technology never goes back into its bottle. It's not something is invented and then somehow it's just like completely memory hold, at least not if it's been as impactful as computer networking has been as we know it. It morphs, it molds and goes in different directions and it's forked and reinvented and reinvented again. Yeah, I don't think that everything is just going to go back to some kind of IRL networking, like meet space communication is all going, that's going to be the only thing that matters. I don't think that's plausible at all, but I do fully expect totally new ways of linking our computers together, totally new ways of doing computing, doing digital networking and of computing in, in general. Yeah, frankly, I think that this is very optimistic. For, I think it's great that the internet over. This could not be more exciting. I'm To me, this fills me with joy and excitement and possibility to be at the end of one inning. Josh Rosenthal talks about this. I think, in fact, I got that phrase from him. If you go back to listen and listen to his episode on the Other Life podcast, Josh Rosenthal, the former academic historian turned kind of crypto investor and entrepreneur, he talks about this. He talks about how crypto is just in its first innings. Okay, it's like, Sure, things are going to go up and down all the time. And you see the same thing with the early internet. But even the internet, even the digital revolution as we know it, is still in its first innings. So the idea of any kind of sweeping claim where you could imagine that somehow like 
all of the internet is over or even all of crypto is over. Like you see this on Twitter, people today are saying that crypto is obviously just over. It's shown that it's fake. Like this is completely ridiculous and naive. It's still so early. And if you go back to the early Renaissance, for instance, or the early Reformation, it's like Leonardo da Vinci didn't realize he was in something that would later be called the Renaissance. Martin Luther didn't know that he was at the beginning of something that would later be called the Reformation. Significant technological and cultural changes take a long time to play out. So the digital revolution, I think, is one. It's like in, in the scheme of human history, it only happened like yesterday. We still have no idea what its implications are going to be. I would say the consumer internet, as we know it, what Sam Chris is calling the internet, that is over. I agree. And Sam's piece is very important for that reason. But I would say that's just the first of what the internet will really be in the long term. Like in 200 years, when people write about the digital revolution or the internet, they're not going to be talking about web 2.0 in the Western countries in the years 2010 to 2020 or something like that. That's going to be one subsection in a much larger chapter. And so I agree with Sam that maybe that subsection is over. There is an important turning taking, and it is important and it's worth reflecting on. It is significant. I think we are going through a significant watershed, but the idea of saying that all of digital networking or the internet altogether in the broadest sense is over, I think that's just obviously absurd. It's unduly pessimistic. And I think it's, it really reflects more kind of temperament and ideological background than anything. And I'm, I'm not throwing shade on that at all. I quite, in a way, the, rep, the tradition that he represents, I think it's cool and he represents it well. It's just, that's where I disagree. I'm much more optimistic and I have much more, I think a much more realistic model of how capital will always perpetually vent itself. And right when you think it's found its final contradiction, it ends up not being the case as Marx was disappointed in his own diagnoses. So there you go. That's my take. It was a good essay. I recommend it. I think it's samchris.substack.com. You go check it out if you want to. Don't subscribe to my YouTube channel. Whatever you do, do not subscribe, okay? Please do not subscribe to the YouTube channel. Don't do it, all right? Don't do it. Everything I make is stupid. Yo, what's going on, everybody? Today, I want to talk about Kanye, or I'm sorry, Ye. I will respect his new name change. Ye is just the best, okay? I think he's just the best. He's the GOAT, the absolute GOAT. He's the only, I think the only celebrity or one of the only celebrities that I truly admire and actually pay attention to and respect and celebrate, if you will. He is just so on a different level, basically. People love to talk about how, oh, they don't care what anyone thinks and oh yeah, I'm an independent thinker. I think what I think and I say what I say and I'm not a conformist. I don't care about peer pressure. People love to say this kind of stuff, but only for Kanye is it truly, completely, absolutely true and real. He is the most extreme version of that we have in public life today. There is truly no one who is more off the hinges in terms of just truly being on his own wave and not pulling any punches whatsoever, not mitigating or hedging or hiding a single ounce of what he thinks or feels. He lays it all out full throttle. And if anyone gets in his way, he not only goes around them and continues to say it, but he will also shit on them and destroy them for trying to stop him. And he just does this at increasingly higher levels and never stops. And it, his, I find his incredible, I find his whole path to, to power and fame absolutely incredible. 
I find even currently his operational style to be just tremendously impressive. It is so hard to say anything that other people dislike generally, if you have even a small bit of fame. Like seriously, even if you're like a tiny micro famous, whatever internet celebrity, and you say something that, you know, your followers dis, or even just that some enemy camp strongly dislikes and you get a sudden outpouring of hatred or antagonism, for most people, it's really painful. It's actually very, very disruptive for them to continue their life. It's more saddening and hurtful and paralyzing and demoralizing than you might think. I've seen it happen to many people who are not that famous at all and who aren't even saying anything that provocative. So to think this billionaire at the absolute top of culture is not just saying things that are mildly disagreed with or problematic or whatever. He's like going for the absolute most provocative thing things ever that you can possibly say, basically. Don't need me to tell you about his current fixations, his current observations, and he's doing a little bit of a speaking tour, it seems, right now on a particular topic of interest. We don't even need to talk about it because I'm honestly, well, maybe we'll do a video about that some other time. It's not that I don't want to talk about it. It's more just that for this video, at this moment, I want to I want to make an observation about the man as a whole, about who he is and what he represents more broadly, because the details of what he's saying at any given time matter far less to me. I think he's done this throughout his life. He's always just basically had an MO. And that MO is what I want to today to praise and to talk about this guy. Obviously, it says exactly what he thinks and feels at all times. And he has figured out how to parlay that into increasingly powerful effects, if you will. Now, something that people will always say is that he's mentally ill. This is what everyone is. Everyone likes to say about him. And people will say this in a good way, and in a bad way, right? So people who are sympathetic to him as a person and they almost, they're acting like they pity him, like they're trying to protect him and say, oh, take everything he's saying with a grain of salt because he's mentally ill. But then also people who dislike him will dismiss him and try to weaken his impact by calling him mentally ill. But he's an adult and he can form complete sentences and he said that he's not mentally ill or he acknowledges a little bit that he has some mental challenges. Who doesn't? If my opinion is that if a man can say, in his own sentences and he's carrying himself and handling his life. And he says to you that the words he is saying are sober and he means them and whatever his mental health fluctuations here and there might be, even if they're extreme, if a man is clearly and soberly saying something that he thinks or feels, you simply cannot dismiss it or discount it or reject it or erase it because of any other facts or circumstances about his mental health. Now, it maybe is different if someone is like physically convulsing, right? If they're in some kind of act stupefying, paralyzing, disabling stupor or tumult or downward spiral that, that is clearly gripping them and pulling their, pulling everything down in terms of functioning and basic existence. If all of that is clearly spiraling in some kind of really stupid, self-destructive, uncontrolled, crazy way, then okay, obviously there, at a certain point, one can point to certain observable variables and say, this person is having an episode, this person is spiraling downward. And it probably is the right thing to do for anyone listening or observing to put brackets around that and to try to help that person. But this moment he then is clearly not that. I mean, he's very soberly just saying what he thinks and feels and he has his own mental models and you can agree with them or disagree with them. Yeah, he's basically going for the some of the most provocative and sensitive talking points that virtually no one else in the world 
would even dare talk about in public, whether they're right or wrong. I don't know yet. I, I need to look into exactly what he said. And we need to think about that. And we can give that separate time and attention. But I all I know is that I admire and respect who goes for the jugular on whatever it is they think or feel when it is sensitive and difficult and generally maligned by society. When anyone talks about that, it's maligned in that kind of context. I just find that type of human life and that type of human truly remarkable and tremendous. And also he's hilarious. He has some really good turns of phrases. Something I will say, I'll admit that no one's perfect, right? He's not, he's not the most book smart person ever. Right? And he's very honest about that. He's very frank about that. He doesn't pretend to be a scholar. He like in one of his interviews, he talks about how he's like reading and writing not his strong suits and spelling, not his strong. He knows his strengths and weaknesses, and he's not really trying to be any, anything that he's not. He is a creative genius. He's managed to make billions of dollars, which is not easy at all, obviously. And that guy clearly has really remarkable gifts, and he's not afraid to use them. He puts them full throttle, 100% maximum speed, full speed ahead, and just does not allow anything or anyone to to stop it. And that, that itself is a skill. That itself is a kind of trait or ability that is not easy at all to maintain or to cultivate or to improve. And yeah, I also think that he's probably the most important Christian man in America. The fact of the matter is that he is fighting for his family. And this is one of the things I really, that resonates with me when I listen to his interviews. It's like, this is not a guy who's just trying to do like abstract thinking. He's not trying to be a public speaker. He's not trying, obviously has ambition and a sense of his own destiny and importance for sure. But you get, you can see very clearly that everything he's saying and his whole rise to power and fame and influence is driven by like really deep personal emotions and values and beliefs and callings that he has. Like in the current moment, he's clearly very driven by the fact that his wife has sought a separation from him and generally has most of the control over the children. He seems to be genuinely just very passionate about rectifying that. And he's very upset about the, this new fact of his life. He's very troubled by it. And these are the things that he's going through that are propelling him to take these increasingly brazen pot shots at different parts of the culture and to attack different individuals and institutions and groups or what have you. And again, you can agree or disagree with any particular targets or how he phrases it or what exactly he's saying. But this is a man who has a kind of deep sense of the relationship between his own experiences and his own emotions and their most general, most universal implications. And the fact that he translates this through a Christian register and, he, and does so very sincerely, I think he's a very sincere and devout Christian, whether he's ideally well-behaved as a Christian is, is another debate, certainly not for me to judge. Like he has some very interesting and unexpected riffs about things like porn and uh, you would not expect to hear from a Christian, but I'm certainly no one to judge his stature as a Christian. He clearly is called by the Christian faith and has sincere belief in it and spends a lot of effort and energy articulating and honoring that and trying to embody that in his own really interesting independent way. But ultimately, I think the only way you honor God and the only way you really function in our society as a true Christian is to really speak what you think is the truth at all times, no matter what happens, let the chips fall where they may. And in that way, I think he's perhaps arguably one of the greatest Christians in America. He's basically what you would call a holy fool. He's a fool for Christ. 
I don't mean fool in a bad way, in the most admirable way. This is a whole tradition. It's a whole lineage where the true kind of honoring of Christ often manifests in a way that normal society just sees as ridiculous and idiotic and that normal society will laugh. He really is embodying that. I don't know of any other living person who more fully is embodying and practicing the very laudable tradition of the holy fool or the Christ, the fool for Christ. And I just find his whole life and his whole, everything he's doing right now, I find it to be in just fascinating and just remarkable in so many ways. And yeah, I just wanted to articulate that and explain why I think he's just one of the best. I think he's by far probably the best, most interesting, impressive, admirable, currently living person who's like at that A-list celebrity level. There's just no one at that A-list celebrity level who I find so interesting and and impressive in these regards. He's just truly one of a kind. And obviously he's getting a lot of flack. Obviously people are picking on specific things he may or may not have said and whatever. Again, to me, those are just details and that's going to wash out in the larger story of what he is and who he is. Yeah, Kanye is the man. And I just wanted to articulate that at a moment when it seems like a lot of people are turning on him. All right, subscribe to the channel, bitches. Peace out. All right, what's going on, everybody? A lot of people have emailed me in the past several months asking me if I know about Nick Land's whereabouts, if I know whether he's dead or alive. The reason people want to know this is because last time he tweeted was like April or something like that, right when the lockdowns in Shanghai started, all right? And a lot of people have been theorizing that perhaps he's been locked into his apartment or maybe killed by the Chinese Communist Party. Who knows what? All we know is that he stopped tweeting and has not tweeted since sometime around April or in the spring. And so I'm here to tell you the news, all right, since everyone wants to know this. Just as of today, Nick Land is proven to be alive. Robin McKay said this recently, Robin McKay from Urbanomic. I don't know about him. We don't know if we can trust him. We don't know what his agenda is. Now we have proof that Nick Land is alive because he just tweeted today in honor of the fact that Elon Musk now owns Twitter. You cannot make up this storyline, people. You cannot make this shit up. This is some top-notch, A-grade content storylines for you, and it's real life, baby. There's nothing stranger than real life, okay? So Nick Land is alive. This is the biggest news in the world of philosophy that has come out all of 2022 because Nick Land is the greatest living philosopher. I believe that, all right? I do believe that, and I am happy. Hallelujah, inshallah, Nick Land is alive. That is a beautiful thing. Today is a very good day, people. Every Twitter follower you have just became that much more valuable because Mr. Musk is going to turn Twitter into an ideal platform. He's going to fix all of the problems. This is so promising that Nick Land has come back from the grave just to be on Twitter. Now it's finally ready for Nick Land. It's worthwhile getting on Twitter now that Musk is in control. Until now, Nick Land probably retired from Twitter because he was probably being shadow banned. It probably felt like it wasn't even worth it. And he was right. But now he's right to be back on because all the shadow bans will be lifted. All free thinkers will be liberated and algorithmic growth on Twitter will be restored to a level playing field, including for the most dangerously based and red-pilled geniuses, okay? Hallelujah, inshallah. Subscribe to the channel. You do not want to miss 
the epic content that's coming out after this. I am just liberated and inspired by Nick Land, by Elon Musk, by every, by Kanye. Yay. Let's go, baby. Let's go.